The Gist is brought to you by The Message. Have you heard The Message? It's an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Season one is available now, so listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, November 25th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I hear that Luxembourg is getting a rebranding. Wait, you say Luxembourg is branded? Yeah, it's got a pretty bad reputation. A lot of chicanery could go on. You heard about the Luxembourg? Well, if you haven't, they're trying to rebrand it. But here's the thing. The guy who invented nation branding, Simon Anholt, has been quoted in the New York Times saying, nation branding does not work. Quote, there is no evidence that it has ever succeeded in changing the image of a country, which sounds true, especially when you read the examples that the New York Times puts forth, all right? I didn't know any of these, but here are some examples of nation rebranding. The eternal and fascinating Romania, Ukraine, all about you, or I feel Slovenia, but the L-O-V is in all caps. Although wouldn't that equally a scan as I feel Slovenia? Yes. So maybe nation rebranding hasn't worked because the examples are also terrible. And there's such low-hanging fruit out there. Why hasn't a certain country come up with not been to Malta? We won't fault you. Or just all, I'd say all of Scandinavia has so many ripe examples. Finland is Funland. Iceland is Niceland. Norway, the doorway to your way. Uh, we could go throughout the world. Bhutan and well-rested. Case of the Monday, visit Burundi. You're gonna have a great time. Kuwait, don't wait. Where to go? Togo. It even works in other languages for the Russian audience. Canada. Anyway, these are all my suggestions. I still don't think it'll help Luxembourg. On the show today, I get equally serious in the spiel. I try to stand up for an institution, actually a member of the family, that's been taking it on the chin on this and tomorrow of all days. But first, we have an interview, a truly affecting interview. It's with the parents of a kid named Jordan Davis. It is a little bit longer than the interviews we normally do, but I really just wanted to give it enough time. So I commend you to it. And if you get a chance to watch this documentary called Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets Do. But here now, my talk with Jordan Davis's parents. Three years ago, actually, it was almost three years ago to the day. It was November 23rd, 2012. A kid, a 17-year-old named Jordan Davis, was killed. He was murdered. But the weird thing about this murder, the horrible and tragic thing, was it took place in Florida. And Florida has something called the Stand Your Ground Law, which looked at one way is self-defense and looked at another way is a pretty decent excuse for anyone to get away with murder. Well, this is the story of Jordan Davis, who was killed by Michael Dunn. Michael Dunn stood trial twice for that shooting. There is an HBO documentary about this. It is uh, emotional and affecting and really well made, and you get to know all the characters, and I think it's sensitive to everyone involved. The name of this documentary is Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets. And Jordan Davis's parents, Lucy McBeth, Ron Davis, are here with me now, and they are in the documentary, and they have been activists. They've been turned into activists since this event, and I want to thank you both very much for coming in. Thanks Thanks for having having us. So compounding this tragedy, you know, the first thing I read in the press notes is is Jordan Davis, an unarmed 17-year-old. I was like, I'm saying to myself, 
you have to say that, right? You have to right. get that fact out. But he's so much more than that, obviously. Mm-hmm. I don't ever want to refer to my sons as, you know, an unarmed, however right. old they are at the time. So just tell me about your son a little bit. Uh, he happy-go-lucky kid. He uh, 17 years old, silly, <laughs> you know. Uh, he liked to try to play basketball. He wasn't very good at it, <laughs> but he was good at baseball. He was good at uh, swimming and uh but, you know, he was kind of a leader among his friends. You know, they would always ask Jordan, what are you going to do today? And he would go. And that particular day was Black Friday, 2012, and they decided to go to the mall, you know. And so, uh, but Jordan, he, uh, he was very spiritual. You know, he cared about people, cared, actually cared about World War II because my parents both were in World War II. My mother was a nurse in World War II, and my father drove a fuel truck to the front in, in Germany in World War II. So very interested in history, very interested in actually race relations because his, his friends were of all races, and that's how we grew up. You know, I was born in New York. I was born in uh, Harlem, grew up in Queens, New York. So, yeah. uh, so he understood a lot about what life was at an early age. And he was getting set to take the SATs, go to college, that sort of thing? Right. Or the military. Yeah, or the military. He'd kind of been moving more towards the military. Um, hmm. My oldest nephew is in the Marines. Yeah. And he, because he started to say, you know, Mom, I know you want me to go to college, but I'm, I'm not so sure I'm really cut out for college. Mm-hmm. I'm think, really thinking seriously about the military. And, you know, of course, for Ron and I, we're like, whatever you want to do, that that's fine. Just do and be the best at it that you can be. So. And his friends that he was hanging out with that day, those were his main friends. They were doing what they usually but do. But two of the guys was yeah. main. Uh, Leland Brunson was his best friend. He mm-hmm. used to come over to the house and have sleepovers. So that was his best friend. And I knew Tevin, but Tommy, actually, I didn't know Tommy, and Jordan barely knew Tommy, which he's the older kid, mm-hmm. and he was the driver. So these were just good kids listening yeah. to some music in their car one day. Absolutely. Yeah. And this guy, Michael Dunn, shoots him, kills him. How did you first hear the news? Leland, Jordan's best friend, who was sitting next to him in the car, called his mother, called his own mother, uh, Tanya, and said, you know, Mom, Jordan got shot. He didn't know the outcome at the time. And all of Jordan's friends that were going to remain Jordan's friends, I told him I need to have the phone number of their parents. You know, I would call their parents. He would get embarrassed. But I said, you know what? Parents need to have phone numbers of friends. If you're going to have, you know, sleepovers and stuff like that, he would go over to his house and sleep over. So I, she had my number. I had her number. And so she called me. I was working part-time. And she uh, said, you know, Mr. Davis, this have to tell you this like this. Jordan got shot. And I don't know whether he's alive or dead, but he got shot. And she said, don't come to the scene, which is at the gas station. Come straight to the hospital, to, to Shan Memorial. So I hopped in the car and went straight, you know, and I'm driving and I'm crying and I'm just hoping and praying that I don't hit anybody on the way because you're not even paying attention. I think your mind just takes you to where the hospital is. And it took me over an hour to find out whether Jordan was there or not because the hospital has these HIPAA laws where if the person doesn't have any ID, they're not going to tell you whether that was the person that was there. Uh-huh. And Jordan's wallet had fell at the scene. And so uh, finally I had a picture on my phone, and I showed it to uh, one of the nurses. I said, is this young man, do you have him in your care? And so she got a policeman, and they took me to the back, and they said, yes, we do have your son, and we'll bring the doctor out. So the doctor came out. When he came out, he came out with two other policemen and also came out um, and said that, uh, you know, I'm sorry, Mr. Davis, we were not able to resuscitate your son. And when I heard that, you know, he probably said about 10 or 12 other things, but I just didn't hear anything besides that, you know, and I just started screaming and crying and you know, the policeman, he's a big six foot five, 260 pound policeman. I mean, whatever came out of my body must have been 
in such an animalistic way, I guess. It just, he broke into tears and walked in the bathroom and got tissues, and he was crying too, yeah. you know. And so, uh, you know, I just asked to see my son, and they had a sheet pulled up to his neck, and uh, he had a little blood on his nose. And uh, I remember his eye was a little bit open at the bottom. I'll never forget that. And they said, well, you can't touch the body. It's an ongoing investigation. I said, I'm touching my son. And I hugged my son and started talking to him, and I just told him that, you know, me and your mother had you for 17 years, and now God's going to take care of you the rest of the way. And I'll never forget that feeling. I didn't want to let him go, you know, and then finally I let him go, and uh, I don't know how I got home that evening. So did they explain to you off the bat, well, this is obviously a murder investigation. How did they frame what the legal proceedings would be from that point forward? Well, they said that the guy, the person that shot at the kids had fleed the scene. Okay. Okay. So that tells you something. That tells me something. Yeah. Never dialed 911. We didn't get any 911 calls, only from the boys that, you know, that this happened, and also from the gas station attendants called 911. So they said, we're looking for the shooter. And apparently there was a woman that got in the car with the shooter, you know, so they they knew that, who, who they were looking for. And what happened, I found out about an hour later, one of the guys that was on the other side of the car he had uh, he was a homeless guy with his girlfriend they were living out of their car and so when the red suv back to flee michael dunn he was faced with michael dunn so he saw straight on michael dunn Mm -hmm. shooting at the cars and so when he saw that he took down the license plate number without this brave young man sean atkins this homeless guy homeless guy you know actually he didn't want to turn in the license number because he knew he would be involved in the case because he was on parole, you know, he had stolen some items from his grandmother, and he said with this, and he was out late at night, he would be rearrested. But his girlfriend slapped him in the face and said, you have to do the right thing. Yeah. And so he came in and wrote on a paper bag the license number. He memorized it. Right. And when he wrote that, as soon as Michael Dunn got back home, they arrested him. And it was accurate. He memorized it It was accurate, yeah. Michael Dunn had stopped at a hotel overnight, had pizza, had a rum and coke, yeah. and walked his dog. After yeah. shooting and killing Jordan. By Davis. the way, a lot of women in this story do the right thing, wind up doing the right thing. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how do you find you're living a hundred miles away, a couple hundred miles away in Atlanta? Uh well, I was in Chicago at the time visiting yeah. family and you know, we'd had Thanksgiving dinner, Thanksgiving Day, and I talked to Jordan and he was in such a tremendously just joyful mood. Just thanking <laughs> thanking me, Mom, you know, you've been the best mom I ever could have had and I know I haven't told you a whole lot lately that I love you, but I just want you to know I love you. And, you know, at the end of the call, he's like, I love you, Mom. Happy Thanksgiving. Peace out. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, the next day, I remember I just happened to be coming upstairs in my cousin's home. I went up to the bedroom, but when I did on the dresser there was Ron's face on the screen, which means I was getting the call from Ron. And I picked up the phone and I said, hey, Ron, how are you doing? Happy Thanksgiving, you know. And he's like, well, where are you? And I said, I'm I'm in Chicago at Terry and Earl's house. And he says, well, but where are you? And I said, well, I'm in the bedroom. Why? He said, where's Earl? And I said, well, he's downstairs with Terry. Why? He says, I need you to go get Earl. And I said, what for? Why do I need to go get Earl? He said, I just need you to go get Earl. Earl's your husband? No, Earl is my cousin. Oh, your uh-huh, cousin. My okay. cousin. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I said, after he said that to me, I said, no, I'm not going to go get Earl. Where's Jordan? Yeah, you know. So I need at, somebody to be at, Yeah, at I, that, know, I know what you were doing. Yeah. At that point. And so then um, Ron said, he said, you know, Jordan's in the hospital. And I said, 
he's in, and I just, you know, lost it. He's in the hospital. And I said, what's wrong with Jordan? And he said, Jordan's been shot. Mm. And I said, you know, is he okay? What's wrong with Jordan? And Ron wouldn't say to me, you know, Jordan's dead. He said, you know, I just need you to get on the first plane and come down here. And that, for me, I knew that Jordan was gone. And I just started wailing, screaming. I mean, just dropped the phone and completely fell apart. And, you know, everything that you worry about your child, you worry about them coming in past curfew. You worry about them being hurt, you know, in a car accident. You worry about them, you know, just being hurt in a fight or, or anything of that nature. Every fear that you have about protecting your child and making sure they're okay, I felt every one of those fears at that moment. Absolutely every one of those fears because I felt like, oh, my gosh, it, it just it didn't matter. I didn't do it well enough. Well... Obviously, it wasn't anything that you did, as you know. I know. hope you've come to accept that. But yeah. I'm interested now in they caught this guy done, the help of the uh, license plate. At some point, he concocts a defense. I'm using that word, concocts a defense. Right. Was law enforcement or the prosecutor at any... Did they tell you and explain to you what the stand-your-ground law was and how this defense was something that they actually seriously might have to contend with other than some sort of, you know, Hail Mary that could never work. Yes, Officer Oliver came over, him and his partner, and uh, they sat on the couch with me and they, you know, me and my wife and said that um, he's going to come out with this story that he felt threatened. He said they all use the same story, use the same five words, I, feel, I fear for my life. Yeah. He said they all use the same words. They get a defense lawyer, yeah. and he says this is what you have to say. Right. Yeah. This is what you have to say. And he said when they take concealed weapon classes, they tell you in the class to say that. So he said this guy is saying the same thing. He said, but we're going to extradite him back from Satellite Beach, Florida, which is like two and a half hours away, mm-hmm. and get him back up here to Duval County. He said, this is going to be tried here in Duval County. We're not going to let this guy get away with coming into our town and shooting and killing a citizen of our town. And so he told me right away that that was going to be the defense. And the the unbelievable thing about Michael Dunn is that he didn't, because it happened so quick that he was caught, mm-hmm. he didn't have a chance to hide the gun. He didn't have a chance to do anything. And he didn't even have a chance to concoct a story, really, because his first story to the policeman was that, well, I was going to turn myself into a friend of mine that was in law enforcement. Well, this other guy, he worked for the Department of Agriculture in Washington, you know. Yeah. That was his neighbor. And he even said, I called that guy. He but said, in truth, the guy did. randomly right. called right. 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 And the guy exactly. came to us, actually, me and Lucy, after, you know, he testified in the second trial and said, this guy is a, is scum. Yeah. He said, we wasn't friends. He was my neighbor, but we were never friends. He said, this guy was scum and everybody knew it. Now, I want to talk about the two trials. Mm-hmm. What Were the prosecutors, were the police, do you feel they always had your back and they always, always. wanted to, always the they wanted to get these guys? the very, very beginning, they always I think in the did. first trial that the prosecutor was pigheaded a little bit because mm-hmm. the prosecutor, me and Lucy, we told them, you know, you, you have to really prove first-degree murder as far as premeditation. And to a layperson, premeditation is you're going home and get a gun and come back, or you go to your car and come yeah. back. That's yeah. premeditation it, to it, us. Premeditation means the amount of time you think about it has to be substantial. But right. I guess in the law, it doesn't. It does, not, but the jury right. is not, not the, the jury right. is not yeah. lawyers. Right. Yeah. And I yeah. think pretty much in the first trial, I honestly think that our attorneys believe that they had enough to convict. Yeah. Right. 
yeah, you know, Michael Dunn, that. even yeah. without that, and which was definitely not the case. But they knew about the Trayvon Martin case, right? They, they but they tried, they tried the Trayvon same, Martin case. They were the same attorneys, the same state's attorneys. So, so they lost that case, too. Mm-hmm. They lost that case, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, And I think that was also fuel for the fire for them to make sure that they worked even harder yeah. for us because it was a matter of, I, I think, you know, at that point, people were beginning to lose faith in them and their credibility as mm-hmm. the state's attorneys. And so, but another thing too, though, is that there was far more information in this, you know, sub- substantiated in our case. There were witnesses right. and they right. absolutely knew that these were good boys. They absolutely right. knew Jordan was a good kid. Right. He gets off on the first trial. Except for attempted murder. murder. He had three counts of attempted murder, which is going to give him 60 years, and he's 47 years old. So it's like a life sentence anyway. And people were questioning me and Lucy, well, if he's going to be in there for life anyway, yeah. why are you going to a second trial? Because right. we want the state of Florida to say that he was not right killing our son. Right. And, you know, no amount of money that the state has to put up to prove that, it doesn't matter to us. Yeah. Right. The answer is a couple things. One, justice, right? Mm-hmm. Two is the more attention you could bring to how stupid these stand your ground laws are they just it's a justification for murder i'm sure cops were telling you that we don't want murderers to get away the the prosecute so tell me about the second trial the second trial is there's two points that i told the uh, prosecutor angela court we must beat this over the head you have to let the, the jury know this they're lay people like me and lucy you have to show them that 10 seconds of premeditation is premeditation. When he thought about it, Jordan said something to him. He reached in his glove compartment. That's premeditation. He had it holstered. He pulled the holster out. Yeah. He pulled the gun out. He pulled the slide back. That's premeditation. Take those 10 seconds. All those. Right. Yeah. Blow them Blow up. Them up. Right. That's Make them, you know, expand exactly. them so that exactly. the jury can sit with that and define yeah. it as premeditation. Exactly. Right. And the second thing is you have to define what's imaginary doubt and reasonable doubt. Yes. Reasonable. Right. If 100 people are in the same situation as Michael Dunn, Done, would they act the same way? That's reasonable, you know. And and no, when you think about it, no. So whether he had it in his head that the boys had a gun, that's is not what matters. Would a reasonable person do the same thing? And you have to point that out to the jury. And there is also some evidence that came into play too that they didn't really hone in on in the first trial. First and foremost, Jordan had this funny little cap on his head, mm-hmm. this knit cap on his head. Mm-hmm. And so there again, Michael Dunn never saw the knit cap. He expressed, you know, when the attorney said, have you ever seen this cap before? He's never, never seen it before in my life. Well, if, in fact, Jordan is getting out of the car to shoot you. Yeah. That's the first thing you would have to see on his head. And not only that, too, there were no indentations on his door showing that Jordan had tried to open his door. No indentations on his Michael Dunn's car to show that a door indeed had been opened. It was all fabricated. So these were the things that we kept saying, Mm -hmm. challenge this, challenge Challenge this, challenge this. And they did. Do you think with the second trial, all the notes, all the information, all the strategy that you imparted to the prosecution, they, without you saying that, they might have had a totally different strategy? It sounds like. They yeah, have, because yeah. They, they can't see beyond, you know, when you go to work every day, nine to five, and uh, if you work in news media, that's who you talk to every day. Exactly. They, they talk to judges. They talk to lawyers. So they're about the law. They, they barely talk to regular people, yeah. you know? And so they needed from us to say, you know what? Regular people is going to think this way, and you must prove premeditation to us. You have to let us know what that really means. Also, stand your ground's a relatively new law, and so they yeah. didn't have years and years of practice of how to explain it to a jury. And Maybe justifiable now they homicide right. also right. is new. So on the issue, there are a few strains of your activism, but on the issue of reforming stand your ground yeah. laws, mm-hmm. 
Have you changed any minds? I mean, it's a contentious issue from what I know about Florida. People hear about your story. They're sympathetic. But maybe there are people who would be sympathetic in the first place. Has any state legislator said, I'm going to change my vote on this? The legislator in uh, the state house in Florida, uh, Alan Williams, put a bill in to repeal it. Mm -hmm. But and me and Lucy both spoke at the Florida state house and they said, well, it's attached to the castle doctrine. Which it, is you, in your home, you could shoot someone, right? There you right. go. So they, and the McBride case it. in Michigan, that was a big issue because he was yeah. shooting from inside the house to outside. Did the Castle Doctrine apply? Right, right, right. right. And gun laws are popular in Florida. Right. Yeah. And don't take our guns away, and well, I get that. And yeah. I just, for the fourth time, actually testified before you know of a committee hearing on stand your ground in Tallahassee about the the. the in opposition of the expansion of the law. And basically, I was told by the chairman in that committee hearing this that, you know, of course, there were a lot of excuses that were thrown around, but at the end, basically, it was just politics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. So you must have thought of this, that what about all these things? What if he wasn't wearing the hat? What if those indentations, like, they could or couldn't have been there, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Without these circumstances, maybe this guy would have walked on the second trial and it the bar shouldn't be that high to get a right. conviction of a guy who obviously just killed someone in cold blood. Right. So what could be done about that? I always say if Michael Dunn, in that very same circumstance, had shot Jordan three times, they would have backed the car and drove away. If he sat in his car with his gun and dialed 911, he'd be walking free today. So he convicted himself from his actions. Had he just said, you know, I fear for my life, these boys came at when he'll be walking free today. Ron Davis, Lucy McBath there, the parents of Jordan Davis. The name of the film is Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets. It's on HBO. It's on HBO Go whenever you want to access it. It's a very good documentary, and thank you guys so much for coming Thank in. you so much. Thank you. I appreciate right. it. Today's show is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But you know, I'm not gonna mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. Search for The Message on iTunes. I'll help you with that search. It's right around number one. And now the spiel, an Anka Anka burning scorn. I would like to devote some time to an institution that will be referred to this Thanksgiving. It will be anticipated, it will be planned for, it'll be strategized, and quite frankly, it'll be a bit feared. I speak of the uncles. As you know, as I've disclosed on this show, I've been de-uncled. All of my living uncles are no more. But then I became an uncle, leading to a net neutral number of uncles in my life. I'm at what they call unquilibrium. But really, is there any position that is frighted with more apprehension 
especially around Thanksgiving, than that of the uncle. Mother Nature Network blog, how to discuss climate change with your uncle during the holidays. Think progress, how to talk to your tea party uncle about Obamacare this Thanksgiving. LA Times, what to do if your crazy right-wing uncle comes for Thanksgiving. And Slate has long run John Dickerson's advice, how to distract your crazy uncle over Thanksgiving dinner. Then, of course, there's this guy. Here with tips on how to cope with your family, Drunk Uncle. Why has the uncle become the go-to shibboleth of all those who decry rudeness, racism, and any out-of-touch sentiment? No one ever worries about the aunt on Thanksgiving. Poor dear, she's had to deal with uncle for so long. Actually, the aunt has a cultural stereotype, too. She's the one who buys you bad presents. But the uncle slander obtains for a few reasons. One, no one primarily identifies as the uncle. If you're an uncle, you're probably a bunch of other things, too. Son, dad, promise keeper, Reagan Republican, fantasy football aficionado, deer of the month club pioneer, fifth caller to a classic radio station. So you're not going to be raising your hand and saying, actually, Actually, I am an uncle. Two, now this is just math and follow me here, but I think there are fewer uncles than there used to be. They're less potent as a demographic. So the United States population is increasing and yet family size is shrinking. So if you have more people, but fewer people in every family, you have fewer uncles than we used to have. Three, they attract the bulk of the scorn that can go to other family members. It's the flypaper theory of unclehood. So we really know one thing about uncles. Their siblings, your parent. Now that fact alone, just knowing that, you can surmise that your parent and your uncle are probably a lot alike. Same general age cohort, very similar upbringings. Yet why is the uncle so decried, but the parent skates by on all serious criticism? Oh yeah, people talk about dad jokes or mom jeans, but uncles aren't merely out of touch on issues of style. They still use terms like orientals or worse. Boo boo. Hey Siri, why did a Chinaman steal my job? The question is, why the widespread anti-uncle sentiment, but mom and dad barbs, not nearly as prevalent? Okay, I think the reason for this has a lot to do with psychology. It is easier to dismiss an uncle who's a part-time interloper in your life. Oh, my racist uncle. That scans as not only the name of a great indie band, but just a tossed-off observation. Someone who's not important to you. But if you say... Oh, my racist mother. Yeah, it'll get a nod of sympathy from the listener, but then the listener will also say to themselves, oh boy, that means therapy. And maybe we notice our racist uncles more than we notice our racist parents. With uncles, it's a smack in the face. With parents, it's a lived experience. Oh, that's just dad. So yeah, it's easier to throw uncles under the bus or any other mode of transportation. I call this the avuncular funicular. But I also think that moms and dads do behave better. First of all, some percent of uncles are childless. No moms and dads are. And the presence of children, I think, makes a person a bit more tolerant. Maybe I'm totally wrong about that. But it's definitely true that the absence of children means that it's less likely that members of a younger generation will have a moderating influence on one's beliefs or expression of said beliefs. Here's another factor. Let's think about the kind of people who criticize the uncle, who trade in the ugly anti-uncle sentiment. These people are progressive. Xenophobia is embarrassing. So something like this. 
immigrants. Sure, I guess there is a family where Trump is extremely popular, where the definition of the embarrassing uncle is some guy who's always blathering on about a $15 minimum wage or getting in his cups and decrying the loss of the rainforest. But mostly, uncles are seen as ugly when their statements trend toward the conservative. And the people who decry ugly uncles are, we establish, progressive. So you got progressives disagreeing with conservatives. And the reason that it's truer for uncles than for parents is that we're more likely to share our parents' political beliefs. If we, the uncle bashers, are progressive, it's quite likely that our parents are progressive, much less likely that our uncles are progressive. My motivation in talking about this whole thing goes way beyond arguing out of self-interest as an uncle. Because I think that if you look at the rise of Trump, the fear of Syrian orphans, the general xenophobia, we are becoming, if not a nation of uncles, then at least half a nation of uncles. In America, we don't have red states and blue states. We have uncle states and aunt states. We've got an uncle party and an aunt party. Our uncle's angry. Our aunt, she's sympathetic but a little out of touch. She still thinks you want a Pink Floyd box set or a jumpsuit or a no vote on every trade agreement. I don't know. Maybe that's not even the problem. Maybe it's just a brilliant insight gleaned from analysis, number crunching, and three or four Bushmills. Can't believe I'm saying this, uh, drunk uncle. I think you might be too drunk. I am not too drunk, but I am, and I say this proudly, exactly enough uncle. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, just producers' favorite uncles are Uncle Cracker, Uncle Floyd, and Uncle Jesse. Andy Bowers, executive producer, enjoys Uncle Fester, Uncle John's band, and Uncle Jesse, the other Uncle Jesse, the one from Full House, not the Dukes of Hazard. The gist, we're partial to the man from Uncle, Uncle Owen, Aunt Beru, and a third Uncle Jesse. This one happens to be our actual uncle, who, as I mentioned, is dead, but was a very nice guy. Mperu de Peru du Peru which actually does refer to a turkey, if you know the phrase. And listen, have a really happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you all Monday. Thanks for listening.